Morning, church. Hey, if this is your first Sunday, I I just want you to know for 267 years, um, we've been gathering on Sunday mornings to worship the true king. Amen? That's what today is about. Uh, My name is Travis Bond. I serve as senior pastor here. And when when you begin to chart it out and write it down, history is just overflowing with men and women claiming kingship in one form or another. We don't use in this country, we don't pay a lot of attention to, to monarchy or um, dictatorships the way some nations do or have. Um, but we, we think in these terms that people establish little kingships for themselves, sometimes in their family, sometimes in their company, sometimes at the level of the state. Um, uh, here's an April Fool's article for you. Um, I thought this was pretty good. I know at least the libertarians will appreciate this. Lawrence Livermore Laboratories has discovered the heaviest element known to science, governmentium, (laughs) abbreviated GV on the periodic table. Governmentium has one neutron, 25 assistant neutrons, 88 deputy neutrons, and 198 assistant deputy neutrons, giving it an atomic mass of 312. These 312 particles are held together by forces called morons. (laughs) Which are surrounded by vast quantities of particles called peons. (laughs) Governmentium's mass only increases over time. Governmentium itself is inert and will actually impede every reaction with which it comes into contact. And it just goes on from there. I thought that was pretty good. And I thought it might be a good place to start this morning um, because we're about to um, read through a fairly lengthy text that really puts the the paralysis of government on display. Um, I don't think that's the main point of the text, but it's certainly a framework for the text. Um, And it it puts on display the paralysis of a couple government officials in particular. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, um, go ahead and open up to the New Testament book of Acts chapter 25. Acts 25, or you can use one of the black Bibles um, in front of you. And while you're finding that, let me, let me just quickly bring you up to speed. If you've been checked out for a couple weeks, um, Paul, you recall, was arrested back in Jerusalem. Um, there's a whole, whole lot of stuff that happened there in Jerusalem, a lot of chaos. And then finally, he was transferred from Jerusalem to the regional governing city of Caesarea, which is out um, on the edge of the Mediterranean. Um, so what we are now find ourselves in is the middle of this courtroom uh, trilogy. Uh, Last week, we had the trial before Felix. This week, we have the trial before Festus. Next week, it's the trial before Agrippa. Um, And if you're here for all of these, it it begins to feel a little bit like Groundhog Day, uh, doesn't it? Um, But I'm confident that there is a reason that the action has slowed here, and because when you begin to realize, um, dig down, um, and realize what God is doing through these trials, he's teaching us something really unique through each one of these courtroom events that Paul is having to suffer through. So this morning, we're going to meet a brand new governor. His name is Festus. He's taken over for the old governor. His name was Felix. Festus is going to make a trip to Jerusalem. Uh, to meet the bigwigs there, and then he's going to travel right back 
to his home, um, uh, governor's palace, as it were, in Caesarea, um, where Paul then is going to get paraded in front of him. And then after all of that, the king arrives, or at least a king arrives. So let's read this together. Acts chapter 25. We're going to start at the first verse. Hear now the very word of the Lord. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is anything, excuse me, but if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed. To Caesar you shall go. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought when the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I had supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with them about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor... I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So, on the next day, 
Agrippa and Bernice with great pomp. And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Thus ends the reading of God's word. It's a long text. You've got the stuff with Festus, and then you've got the conversation between Festus and Agrippa, and then you've got the thing in front of Agrippa. Um, I think to take all these verses at once, let's just do it this way. I just want to throw at you, um, for the balance of the sermon, two scenes or two locations, and we're just going to kind of key in on that, which I think is going to capture um, the thrust of what's going on here. Um, so number one, Festus's courtroom, if you want to take notes. Number two, Agrippa's audience room. Festus's courtroom, and then Agrippa's audience room. Um, and like I alluded to, there was a time in this series, um, in this sermon series that we've been in going through now for two years, there was a time when it was like every week there was a new city to visit, you know? There, there was a new, new adventurous things happening in the text. Um, the action has slowed considerably here. And um, while that makes it a little trickier to preach with freshness every week, it does beg the question, why? Why is so much of this record of the early church's explosion into the known world taken up by following this one man's imprisonment and trials. Um, I don't think it's without purpose at all. Uh, So chapter 25 here on your laps, it opens with a brand new governor, but he's dealing, of course, with the same old charges. Um, Felix, you'll recall, he was an awful person. Um, He was recently recalled back to Rome. He had this really brutal insurrection and it caused all kinds of trouble because the way he put it down. So he's, he's basically been fired. He gets to go back to Rome. Festus has now moved into his palace. He's moved into his office. Um, Festus, he sets up the, the filing cabinet and he sets up some pictures of his wife and he hangs some pictures of his kids there in the office. And then he says to his admin, schedule my first business trip, please. I'm going to Jerusalem. And that's exactly uh, what he does. Um, Within three days, verse one, he heads to Jerusalem. It's the smart thing to do because, I mean, he's the the new big cheese in the area, right? Roman occupying force over Judea and the Jews. And so he's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to meet kind of the power players, the religious elite there in Jerusalem. Um, He's got a series of meet and greets there. And then it doesn't take long before the lobbyists come out, right? Verse three, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. And so there it is, right on schedule, our newest element on the periodic table, 
governmentium. Verse 3, it's called political interest, right? Different context, but you guys recognize this stuff. This is a lobby group. They're lobbying Governor Festus for political favors to arrange a change of venue for Paul's trial. And the reason that they want a change of venue for Paul's trial from Caesarea, which the Romans run, to Jerusalem, which is locally run by the Jews, the reason they want that change of venue is because between the one and the other, they're going to ambush them and they're going to kill them. They're going to kill Paul. They've tried this before. They're not terribly inventive, it would seem. You've got to remember, it's been two years, right? I mean, you like jump from one verse to the next, but there's 24 months in between one chapter to the next. 24 months. Paul's been waiting in prison. It's like, it's like white-collar prison for him. You know, he's able to get guests, and it's, it's reasonably comfortable for prison. And all that time, the Jewish, they, the Jewish elite, they hate him. And it's just been festering in their hearts. The, the, the bitterness for two years, they're still trying to murder the guy because anger unresolved is a deadly poison, right? You know this. You've seen it in your friends. You've seen it in family members. You might have seen it in yourself. Unresolved anger eats your soul. Someone has said, to carry a grudge is like being stung to death by one bee. <laughs> that's, exactly, that's exactly right. And for some of us, I don't know, that might, be the, well, that might be the one takeaway for you this morning. Christian, if you're, I mean, not even Christian, you don't need to be a Christian to understand this. Wherever you're coming from, whatever your perspective, if you're harboring a weed of bitterness, my friend, pull it out. By the root, especially if you're part of this church. Christians don't put up with that. We don't let that stuff hang around because we see, maybe we won't be plotting someone's murder, but we see where bitterness goes. So the Jewish leaders, they still hate Paul. But this new Roman governor, Festus, he actually displays a little bit of backbone here. He's not nearly as bad as Felix, the, the historian Josephus. He records that as well. Festus, he wasn't a perfect guy. But he, he's, I mean, there's a little bit of, I mean, he flatly denies the political favor. He essentially tells them, hey, my court is in Caesarea, and that's where we're going to do it all. Then as we read on, we find that as soon as he returns to Caesarea from his business trip, the very next day, I'm at verse 6, Festus convenes the court. I like it. The guy's decisive. So now we enter into the first of two main locations, right? Festus's courtroom. Festus's courtroom. Um, all rise. It's like Judge Judy coming out there. Um, Festus, he's real no-nonsense. Case should be dismissed, obviously. But it's not dismissed. <laughs> Instead, the paralysis sets in again. Governmentium. Festus, who, I mean, he seemed so decisive just a few days before. Well, apparently, having thought about it for a little while, he's suddenly not so much. Like Felix before him, 
Festus, he's beginning to realize he's under intense political pressure from the Jews. So he waffles, verse 9, on the whole change of venue thing, like floats the idea to Paul, maybe you would like a change of venue, Paul. And Paul is iron. He refuses to give in. He says, hey, if you aren't going to adjudicate my case, then I'll go to Rome, thank you very much. Into verse 11, I appeal to Caesar, which as a Roman citizen, he had every right to do. Now, if you've been with us for a few weeks, do you remember all the way back, it was in chapter 23, after the arrest and the riot and the tribune, Lysias, he, he couldn't understand, why is everyone rioting? This guy hasn't really done anything. And then we have the imprisonment and the almost flogging. And then we have Paul being paraded in front of the Sanhedrin. And that just all blows up on him. And then Paul goes back to his prison cell in Fortress Antonia, the garrison there on the side of the Temple Mount. And you remember chapter 23, verse 11, what happened? That God came and he stood beside Paul. Does that ring a bell? It's a significant image, I think. Because there's the Lord coming and he's standing beside Paul and he encouraged him, if you remember the text, and he promised him something. He promised him, Paul, you're going to bear testimony to me where? Yeah. And that's, that's exactly what's going to happen here. Paul hasn't forgotten that. In the face of so much hoopla... <laughs> He trusts what God says. Remember, Paul has been through the flames. And there's a fair bit yet to come. But we're learning a powerful truth in this chapter and then flowing into the next. That some Christians fear the fire. Other Christians become the fire. You see it here. You see it in verse 25. It becomes even more clear in, um, not verse, rather, rather, chapter 25 becomes more clear in chapter 26 that, that Paul, he is absolutely aflame with confidence in the gospel. He is, he is lit up with confidence in what God said is going to happen. And so you begin to have this truth like worked into your heart a little bit. That some Christians fear the fire. Other Christians become the fire. It's a long chapter. But we're just focusing on these two scenes. Governor Festus's courtroom. And then second, King Agrippa's audience room. And in between the two there, Festus and Agrippa, they get together over lunch or in the conference room or something, and they kind of hash it out. And we, we review a lot of material that we knew already. It's kind of, you know, it's polished a little bit by Festus as he talks to Agrippa. And then we have this scene in Agrippa's audience room. And if you drop your eyes down to verse 23, you'll see, you'll see King Agrippa and his um, companion, Bernice, they enter with great, what's the word? Pomp. They came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Um, so Festus is governor, Roman politics, a little bit kind of tricky to, to picture because it's foreign to us, but bottom line, you got the regional governor and then you got a guy called a king and he's over a much, much larger area and of course he's underneath the emperor, Caesar. 
And this right here, says Barclay, the commentator, is the most dramatic scene in all of the New Testament. Eh, I don't know if I'd agree with that. <laughs> when you think about some of the stuff that happens in the New Testament, I don't think this is the most dramatic. But it is a scene kind of wor- worth painting in your head because of what's going on here. Pomp and circumstance. You can hear it playing, right? Some of you, your kid is going to graduate this year, and you're going to go and you're going to hear it over and over. It's going to drill itself in your brain. The pomp, and I may, or maybe they're playing Hail to the Chief or something like that, right? And then come the bodyguards. They come in and they unfold against the wall, all the soldiers. And now comes Bernice and the king with their golden chains and their royal purple Roman robes and the trumpets are going and it says all the prominent people of the city, well, they're there too and now they're bowing down and then after all of the pomp, the music dies down and you can see him hobble in. (laughs) Paul. If tradition is accurate, and it probably is, Um, Begg records that Paul would have been a small man with a receding hairline and beetle brows, which I believe we call today a (laughs) monobrow. Paul had a hooked nose, bandy legs, so he always looked like he just got off a horse, and he was slumped slightly after years of ministry filled with multiple beatings. You have it in your mind's eye there. There was no beauty attached to him that any would be attracted to him. He certainly would have looked out of place against a a backdrop of these tall, amazingly fit, powerful Roman legionnaires. For Paul, there's no gold chain, (laughs) just chains of captivity. For Paul, there's no royal Roman robe, just a prisoner's rags. Yet Paul does not seem to fear the fire. In a sense, he becomes the fire. So for those of you, you kind of like to use your imagination with it, frame out a picture, that's the picture. Majesty, might, power, And standing in the middle of it all, this small little contemptuous figure. He ought to be intimidated. Why isn't Paul intimidated? His life hangs in the balance. All the weight of governmentium is pressing down on him. He's standing before people who they can squash him like a bug, can't they? Why isn't Paul afraid of this king and the governor beside him and the accusers around him? Well, of course, it's because Paul has stood before the king. Paul has stood before a king whose glory made him go blind for three days. And I think that when you've knelt before the sovereign majesty of the risen Christ, the fanfare of an earthly ruler or earthly trials need not frighten you. That verse 23 word, pomp, I don't know why I like saying it so much. (laughs) 
I like the way it sounds in a microphone. <laughs> There's a little pop to it. it. It's from the Greek fantasia, P-H. Fantasy. The word means light or fleeting of only momentary interest. That's informative. I know the impressive things of this world. Some of us are surrounded by impressive things. Some of us, we think we have impressive things. Structures, positions, nations even. And they seem so permanent, don't they? They seem so stable. Understand, Christian, in God's economy, all of it is fantasia. Passing. It's a, it's a breath. Like the grass, they will wither. The pump will soon pass away. The people in that room will pass away. The Roman Empire that the people in that room represent will pass away. But the gospel of the king of eternity stands for all time. It would seem Paul understands this. This is why some Christians fear the fire. Other Christians who get this become the fire. King Agrippa, man, wasn't he a piece of work? He, so he has a, a family with a long history of encountering Christ. His great-grandfather was Herod the Great. Does that ring a bell? He's the guy who ordered the slaughter of the innocents in Bethlehem, trying to get at this, this king who would be coming. And so all of the children, two years and under. Agrippa, that was, that was his great-grandfather. Agrippa's great-uncle was Herod Antipas. He's the one who ordered John the Baptist murdered and to whom Jesus was sent on the night that he was betrayed in the ping-pong with Pilate and Herod. And, oh. Agrippa's father was Agrippa I. He was the same king who executed James the disciple who imprisoned Peter, who later fell down and died when the adulation of the crowd, he would not uh, push away, and they called, they said he was like a god. Okay, that's the background. It's not the best, like, lineage. And now seated in the audience room beside this Agrippa II is his companion, Bernice. She was also his sister. She had previously married her uncle, had left him, was now in an incestuous relationship with this brother. Her own behavior was so notorious that 10 or 15 years after this, all of Rome is going to rise up against this woman because of the abhorrent conduct of her life. With the, you know, she just kind of moves from one guy to the next. Now she's with Emperor Titus for a while. Here's my point. By God's providence... These are the people <laughs> who pass judgment on Paul. A righteous man, innocent of all the charges he's charged with, is now being judged by people whose own sense of self-importance is most important. With pomp and gold and all the things they imagine themselves to have ultimate power. But I really like what Margaret Thatcher once said. Being powerful is like a lady. If you have to tell people you are, you aren't. <laughs> it's good. 
And that's where the chapter ends. An innocent man standing before a corrupt politician who's unwilling to do the right thing. An innocent man standing before a corrupt politician who's unwilling to do the right thing. Kind of reminds us of another scene, doesn't it? Different politician named Pontius who had a basin of water and an innocent man in front of him. And what did Pilate do? unable. He was unwilling to recognize his need of a savior. And so we have on the first Sunday of each month this table. And the table asks us the exact same questions that are set before Festus and Agrippa and Pilate. Every first Sunday of the month, the table asks us all over again, what will you do with Jesus? What will you do with the gospel? We take the, the sheets off and we open up the stuff and, and it's, just, it's just bread, it's just juice. We don't do anything, we don't, do any, we don't sprinkle any magic clergy dust on it. It's, it's just... It's just bread and juice. And we do it. We, we have the table because it asks us, what will you do with Jesus? Will you waffle? Will you delay? Or will you finally, maybe for the first time in a long time, maybe for the first time at all, will you cast your sin aside? And will you finally Unlike Felix and unlike Festus and unlike Agrippa, will you finally bend the knee to the risen king? Thank you for joining us for today's message. Medway Community Church would love to welcome you as our guest one day soon. Our church family meets every Sunday morning for worship and also offers a wide variety of small group and ministry opportunities. To learn more, please visit us on the web at medwaycommunitychurch.org. We look forward to seeing you soon. Washing all my shame.